So I want to welcome you again this morning, um, whether you're joining us online here for first service or um, lots of you here in person this morning as well. If we haven't met, my name is Gabe Parker. I'm the associate pastor of worship, so uh, oftentimes playing music, but this morning I get to... Um, get to preach. So this morning, we're continuing, moving towards wrapping up our sermon series in Mark. If you recall, before Christmas, we went through the first, oh, about half of the Gospel of Mark, and the sermon was, the series was called The Servant. We focused on the way that Jesus served in his ministry, and this second half is called The Sacrifice. And as we look forward to Easter, I think we can, we can all understand, you know, that title. So that, that's where we're at, that's where we're continuing. And I, I want to, um, I want to think back to the last song that the worship team led us in. <clears throat> um, they sang it last week and then again this week, um, so hopefully you're becoming familiar, but the song is called Abide. And the, the kind of theme and line of the song says, draw me close and teach me to abide. And ultimately, while we sing it, it's a prayer. It's a tremendous prayer that Jesus would draw us close to him and teach us how to follow him in obedience to the Father's will to abide. So a question to get us going this morning is, is internal, uh, rhetorical if you may, but, but my question is, do you along with me desire this full trust in God, this full abidance in his will, just as Jesus displayed and just as we pray and sing that God will empower us to do? Do you desire that in the moments and seasons of your life? And if so, I think we have a lot to learn from the message this morning. So here's where we are in the story, the Gospel of Mark. We are right in the midst of Holy Week. In fact, where the scripture, which we'll read here in just a minute, comes in, it's, it's Thursday. Jesus is entering the Garden of Gethsemane. The time is approaching where he feels the full spiritual weight of the physical cross that he is soon to bear. And in this moment, Jesus teaches us what it truly means to abide in the Father's will. So let's read together this morning from Mark 14, and we'll read the whole passage together. It'll be from verses 32 through 42, so please read along with me. Jesus, along with his disciples, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here, keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples. He found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So that's our passage this morning. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And really there's two pretty distinct parts. Um, and the sermon is very much going to focus on, on the first versus the second. But we see in one part, we see Jesus just deep distress and anguish 
and what's going on in, in his soul and his heart. And then also we see this kind of back and forth where Jesus finds the disciples sleeping, and, and we'll dig into that a little bit too. But before anything, I just want to kind of frame the entire message this morning with four really important things that we see in Jesus. And these, these themes, these ideas will come up all throughout the message, and they're right there in your bulletin as well. We see four really important things in Jesus. We see his loneliness and his anguish. We see his commitment to prayer. We see his deeply seated desire to abide in the Father's will. And then finally, we see his love and compassion for his disciples. So I hope throughout the message, you might just kind of look back and see, oh, there's Jesus' abidance in the Father's will. There's Jesus loving and having compassion on his disciples. So so those things will come up throughout. So let's talk a little bit about this Garden of Gethsemane. I've always kind of been just just personally intrigued. I mean, the word's kind of cool, Gethsemane. Um, But but it's it's really a pretty neat place. As we think about... um, a number of weeks ago, Pastor Ryan preached over what was called the Olivet Discourse. And it was called that because Jesus was having this conversation with the disciples on the Mount of Olives. And so the Mount of Olives is just right outside of the city of Jerusalem. And as you looked back at the city, it'd be really probably a pretty grand uh, perspective. So the Mount of Olives is exactly what you would expect. It's a, it's a large hill, a mount. And at the time, the hillside is covered with olive trees covered with olive trees, and as you go down the Mount of Olives, you arrive in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's where the garden is. Now the word Gethsemane, translated, means something like this, a place for pressing oil. Or it could be translated as a place for pressing wine. Either way, the translation of the word is something to the effect of an olive being pressed and oil coming out of it, or a grape being pressed and juice coming out of it. And the garden is aptly named Gethsemane. As a visual, um, I want to show you just one version of a one-man oil press at Jesus' time. This, there, there were probably many ways that they did this, but this is one version. And I don't think you have to be too mechanically inclined to understand how this works. Right? As you see, we have this stone, I don't know what to call it, trough, basin maybe, and then a large, I'm assuming heavy, stone wheel, and the person, you know, grabs that handle and almost just like a, I assume they could almost hold an, hook an animal up to that, but you just walk in a circle and allow the weight of that stone to press and squeeze out the oil from the olives. Gethsemane was an oil press for Jesus. In this scene, Jesus is being spiritually crushed. Luke chapter 22 recounts the same experience, the same scene of Jesus in the garden. And and Luke 22 verse 44 says this. It says, Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, some people believe that that's just figurative language, that that Luke is trying to kind of make this point, that it was so hard for Jesus that his sweat was like drops of blood. But there is actually a physical condition in which this can happen. It's called hematidrosis. That's our big word for the day, hematidrosis. But, but it's a real thing. It's quite rare, but it's very real. And, and what happens when someone experiences this is they are undergoing such stress and anxiety that literally the blood vessels at the surface of the skin burst and they, ex, they excrete blood as sweat. It's a real thing. And it is caused by the most extreme suffering and anguish. 
the Greek word that's used to describe Jesus' anguish, I'm gonna pronounce it as best I can, is ekthemveo, is the word. And it is the word in the Greek that means the deepest suffering and anguish you could possibly, possibly fathom. That's what Jesus is experiencing. Suffering and anguish that would cause him to sweat blood. So there we have it. That's, that's where Jesus is at on this Thursday evening. Now, I think there's two really important observations to make. And the first is this, that God the Father is sovereign. He is over all things, and his will will never, ever be thwarted. And in his sovereignty, he allows his son, Jesus, to experience this anguish, this pressing. And in the pressing, what is produced from Jesus is absolutely remarkable. As I think back in, in, in verse 34 of this passage, Jesus says that his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. To the point of death. And already by verse 36, he is on the ground praying to his Father in heaven. It takes no time at all for Jesus to go from being overwhelmed to the point of death to on the ground praying to his Father in heaven. He is driven to prayer. He is so connected with his Father that when being completely smashed between the rock and the hard place, what comes out of him is reliance on the Father, prayer. So a question I have for you, and I've been asking myself this question as well, is what comes out of you when you are pressed? So as you think a little bit, I'm going to give just a, a quick example, and I, I kind of chuckle about it now. It's a little bit lighthearted, but um, I've actually thought more about it than maybe I let on, but... Uh, my family visited my grandmother down in Florida last week, and so we were coming home. We flew in and out of Chicago midway. So as we, we got back into town on Thursday afternoon, we jumped in the van, and we're headed down oh, Archer, Archer Avenue Street. And I don't know Chicago super well, but I certainly was not in Kansas anymore. It was not, I've actually never been to Kansas. <laughs> but, I don't know, maybe I have. But, but it was not, um, I could tell it was not the best part of town. And, and I wasn't really nervous, but there was this like, I'd kind of like to get the heck out of Dodge and just get headed west to home. But I really, really wanted a coffee. And I'm not like a frou-frou drink coffee guy, but every once in a while I'll get a mocha. And I was like, man, I just, I want to start this seven-hour drive with three kids with a mocha. So we come to a Dunkin' Donuts. And that's what I am. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a drip coffee or a mocha guy. So we, we get through the, the drive through there, and I don't even look at the menu. I'd like a, like a small mocha, please. And the, the guy comes through and says, uh, yeah, do you want cream and sugar in that? I go, uh, in the mocha? Yeah, in your coffee, you want cream and sugar? Uh, no, no, thank you. Okay, we'll see you at the window. And so I can tell, okay, we've clearly had a miscommunication. We'll just talk about this in person. So we get up to the window, and I'm kind of waiting, and as, as he's getting ready to hand the drink, he says the total, I think, was 282. I'm like, nope, that's not a mocha price. So I said, ah, sir, I think we got the wrong drink. He's like, yeah, you ordered your coffee. I said, well, I, I asked for a mocha. Yeah, mocha coffee. And now I'm like, okay, you are not being helpful at all. I've worked in customer service for lots of years. In fact, I was a barista for like 12 of them. Like, everybody knows what a mocha is, man. And so the way I respond to him is literally this. Dude, I've worked in coffee for almost two decades. And anybody that works in coffee knows what a mocha is. Is that a direct quote? Yeah, Brenna, my daughter says yes. And uh, needless to say, the dude, he turned around, walked away. I mean, he just left, put the coffee down, walked away. 
And so I'm assuming the manager comes up and he says, sir, uh, can I help you? I said, I just, I just want a small mocha to go. And so they had already, like, they can all hear what's going on, you know, because they all got the headsets on. And the gal comes around the corner right away, gives me the coffee. It's the right thing. And I've got money ready to pay. And she says, sir, we messed up. I'm sorry. Uh, you don't need to pay today. Oh. Like, you're not even going to let me pay my four bucks for this mocha? Anyway, and she didn't. She did not allow me to pay. Anyway, a little bit of a, a silly story maybe, but I have reflected on why is that the way that I responded? Why? I mean, I'll, I'll never see that guy again. Didn't learn his name. I could probably describe what he looks like. He looks like every mid-20s white guy. That, you know, like, like, I'll never see him again. And that was the influence I had on him. And that's, that's really troubled me. So back to the question, what about you? When someone pulls out in front of you at the four-way stop, when it is clearly your turn, what comes out of you, right? Because that never happens. Uh, maybe go a little deeper. When you learn that a coworker has been backstabbing you, straight up lying behind your back for whatever reason, maybe they want your position, maybe they're jealous of you, what comes out? When someone judges you about your parenting style or your kid's behavior, what comes out of you? When you feel like a constant failure, everything is against you, what comes out of you? When a loved one dies, you're simply not ready. It's not fair. What comes out? See, I don't really know a lot about olives, and I don't know much more about olive oil. But what I do know is that the quality of olive oil is largely determined by two things. <clears throat> the process of the pressing and the soil in which the olive was grown. See, much like a coffee bean, which I know a little bit more about, the dirt defines the flavor. The dirt defines the flavor. So the point is that where we are rooted will define our fruit. And so if what's coming out, if the fruit don't look so good, we need to think about where we're putting down our roots. Now the second beautiful thing that we learn from Jesus in this scene is that he is and continues to be right here in the trenches with us. Jesus is experiencing a depth of loneliness that none of us will ever understand. Let, let's, let's try to grasp this. Jesus has been with the Father since the beginning. Right? Genesis says, in the beginning. Jesus has always been with his Father. John 1.1 1, 1 says this, in the beginning the Word was with God and the word was God. And if you look at John 1.1, 1, 1, the word is capitalized. It's a proper noun. It's a name. And then later in John 1, chapter, or excuse me, John 1.14, it describes the word as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was there at creation. He has always been in communion with his father. And now he's living among that creation, feeling and experiencing the realization that he is about to bear the very the sin of the very humanity he created. He's soon to be held responsible for everything that is not of the Father. He is soon to be relationally separated from the Father in heaven, whom he has always existed with. So as, as a feeble attempt to try to wrap our minds around this, I've got a son, his name is Will, he's gonna be five next Sunday. Now, this is a far, this is an imperfect metaphor because Will and I are not God, 
and we have not existed forever. But follow me here. So imagine, just imagine, I know this is a little hard to imagine, especially for my wife, but imagine that Will and I, from the moment he is born, live in complete and perfect harmony. <laughs> yeah, right, it's funny. <clears throat> we don't. Uh, but, but through his childhood, through his teen years, uh, through young adulthood, we are always in perfect unity and harmony. And then there comes a day when Will makes a choice. He chooses to take responsibility for something that is not his to bear, in which he knows will be absolutely devastating to our relationship. Now, here's an important point. Pastor Ryan kind of helped me work this out. Will's position as my son won't change. Just as Jesus' position as God didn't change. However, the schism that will happen in the relationship is undeniable. And that's what Jesus, that, that's what Jesus is feeling. Is he is about to be relationally separated from his father whom he has existed with as part of the triune God forever. And what's incredible is the only thing that he wants more than to continue in perfect relationship with his father is to abide in his father's will. The only thing he wants more than relationship with his father is to obey. And let's not forget that just as Jesus was God and never ceased to be God, he was also just as much human Right, that dual nature of Jesus. And in that, he felt emotion just as we do. We can never imagine the loneliness and the anguish. So with that, when you experience loneliness, when you believe the lie that your darkness is deeper than anyone else's, when you believe the lie that no one could possibly understand how you feel, I know somebody that does. Jesus understands, and he is absolutely for you. He's desiring, and he is highly qualified to minister to you. You're never alone. Never, ever alone. <laughs> oh, boy. Time is not my friend this morning. So I think another important point, and I'll make this pretty quickly, but in Jesus' time in the garden, we see him lament. And without getting too much, basically what that means is he recognizes he's in a hard circumstance and he asks to be delivered from it. He specifically asks, Father, if this cup might pass from me. But then what does he follow up with right away? Yet your will, not mine. So I think what we learn from Jesus here is that he... He is willing to be vulnerable with his Father in heaven. He knows the Father's will. Right? He, he, he is God. He knows the Father's will. And yet, he asks that God change it. He knows hardship is coming. He's feeling the hardship. And he doesn't put on this face of like, okay, God, I'm super, super happy. Like, I'm gonna look at, you know, James 1 and consider it pure joy. That you're like, he doesn't put on this front or this face in front of his Father and say, yeah, I'm super pumped, God, to go to the cross. No, he says, Father, I don't want this because it hurts. Would you please allow this cup to pass from me? And the answer is no. And then he 
submits to his father's will. But I think there's an example in there for us as to how we approach the throne and how we, how we relate to the Father in heaven. So a, a quick point that I, we've, we've kind of abridged a little bit, but something that I do want to point out is that in Jesus' case, he wasn't delivered from death, but rather delivered through death. And again, hearkening back to James, just to think the joy that has come from Jesus' trial. Think of the millions of lives that have found true joy and eternal salvation in Jesus Christ because he was delivered through death and not from death. Thank God that he led Jesus through the trial rather than delivering him from it. So we, we all know to some degree the world we live in, and I don't think anyone can honestly look at it and be like, yeah, that's a great place. I'd like to go there. We, we live in, a, I mean, there's great things. There, are, there is brightness and God's light everywhere, but also there's a lot of darkness. Our world is living through a pandemic of loneliness is what we're dealing with, really. Satan uses everything from politics to natural disasters to social media to create a world culture of shame, anger, and isolation. Tell me that you've not felt that. Shame, anger, and isolation. But as we are in Christ, we are not to live like the world. Wallowing in loneliness, loathing. So my question is, how can we be different? If we're convinced that Jesus experienced loneliness and that he ministers to us through that, how do we live? And I think, you know, while our circumstances are different than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, none of us are preparing to be sacrifice for the sin of humanity. So we have to kind of fill in the blanks with our own experience, but Jesus gives us a sort of blueprint, if you will, for how to walk through suffering well. So, so, so let's look at that quick. The first thing that Jesus does is he prays. Before seeking human help, before seeking counsel, he comes before God and he falls to the ground before God. Laid down his pride, laid down his ambition, his own desires, his anger, he prayed to God. So as we deal with loneliness and suffering, just as Jesus did, prayer is crucial. And then two, in that prayer, he is completely honest with the Father in heaven. He is completely vulnerable. He pours out his heart and asks that the will be different because it hurts. I think that's the second thing we learn, is that in prayer, vulnerability before the Father, honesty before the Father is crucial. And then because of those two things, Jesus is able to do this third thing, and it's to completely and fully abide and accept the Father's will, yet your will and not mine. He had the power to accept deliverance through his trial because he is committed to his relationship with the Father. So as we experience times of suffering or loneliness, just as Jesus did, we pray. We pray honestly, wholeheartedly, vulnerably, and we ultimately except that God's way is better than our way. And then I think the fourth thing we see from Jesus that, that we can learn from here as well is that he invited his friends to be with him. Yeah, it says he went a little further and play, prayed alone, but he did not go into the garden alone. Who did he bring? He brought Peter, James, and John. Right, steady eddies. He brought his closest 
of disciples with him. He didn't go alone, nor should we. But also, and this will this will kind of transition us into the last piece of the message. He continued to minister to his disciples. He didn't become self-serving in his loneliness and forget about all those around him. In fact, he continued even in his last. I mean, he, he's, his ministry is done. This is where it ends. Right after this, next week, Jesus gets arrested. He is he is in custody from now until death, and he takes these final moments to minister to his disciples. Let's reread very quickly um, the last few verses of the passage and see how he ministers to them. He returned to the disciples, found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away, prayed the same thing, that the cup would pass from him. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So on the surface, it looks like Jesus is just kind of chastising them. But there's something important here. The, The word that is used when Jesus says, keep watch, it's the exact same Greek word that's used back in chapter 13 from a few weeks ago when, when Jesus tells the parable about uh, you know, the owner leaving the house. We're, we're, we don't necessarily have time to go back and read it right now, but the owner leaves the house. He leaves the servants in charge. And he says the one at the door should keep watch for his return, that he not be found sleeping. It's the exact same word that's used. So here's the observation I'd like to make. Well, it's absolutely certain that Peter, James, and John were absolutely dog-tired. I mean, just think about what they've been through. They've just experienced the Last Supper, this emotional time around the table where Jesus takes the elements and describes them as his body and his blood. And then he tells all the disciples, you will all fall away. And of course, Peter says, no, not me. And Jesus says, no, you will deny me three times. That's what they've just been through. These guys are strung out physically and emotionally. They're tired. Their bodies are tired. So when Jesus tells him to keep watch and kind of chastises him for sleeping, I think he's referencing more than a physical awakeness. I mean, honestly, those men don't have the power to change God's will. They don't have the power to stop the arresters that are coming. What's it matter if they're awake or not physically? He's teaching them. In his last moments, Jesus is teaching them. He says, keep watch. He's referencing a spiritual awareness. So we see Jesus continuing to love and have compassion for his disciples, even in his greatest suffering. And the warning to us, as well as his disciples, is keep watch, be alert, be waiting and anticipating his return. The disciples' eyes were heavy physically, but they were also heavy spiritually. And sometimes I think we have heavy spiritual eyes too. So as the worship team comes on up, uh, I just want to wrap up really with some application. And it's, it's all, it's nothing new here. It's all uh, things that have come up throughout the message already. But just going to kind of review a little bit. So here's one application point. That Jesus understands and is with you in times of loneliness. Trust him. Give him authority Allow his suffering 
to take the edge off of your own and bring you out of your pride and darkness. Jesus understands and is with you in times of loneliness. Secondly, prayer is crucial and it is critical. It is a literal lifeline. I have no doubt in the Garden of Gethsemane, if Jesus doesn't pray, he doesn't live. There's, there's a, I mean, his soul is troubled to the point of death. And he prays. So the encouragement to us is to cultivate a lifestyle of prayer. Put in the relational deposits, if you will, and pray boldly and unashamedly before your God. Yet not, his, not your will, but his. And then a final point is to live with eyes wide open. From the garden we learn about Jesus, and he is indeed teaching us how to suffer well. We also learn a lot about ourselves and about the church from Peter, James, and John. We're called to be awake, watching, living our lives in a way that we welcome the return of Christ. If we choose to sleep, who knows what we might be missing. Live with eyes wide open. So just to bring it full circle here, as, as a final thought, and as the worship team uh, prepares to lead us in, in our closing song, song of response, really, I want to return to that question. In the pressing what comes out of you? If you're anything like me, it's not always what you desire it to be. Jesus has demonstrated what the life of abidance looks like. We see it in the garden. As we choose to draw close to him, I encourage you to be trusting in Jesus with your life and your circumstances. Trust him to be gracious and to forgive. Allow him to relate to you and minister to you. And finally, I encourage you to pray openly your heart to your Father in heaven. As Brett spoke earlier, it's a promise that as we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. As we abide in him, he will abide in us. He will draw near. And as this relationship deepens, your roots find better soil. When the time of pressing comes again, or even the time of pressing continues, maybe you're in it now. We can be like Jesus, and we can desire the Father's will above all else. Will you please stand and, and join us in a song of response?